0: James. The beginning of James chapter three is an interesting um, passage of scripture. It starts with a particular verse that, in my mind, is sort of like another hinge. We've talked about this before with James. That is, I think James chapter three verse one stands alone. It doesn't necessarily go with the rest of the text that we'll be uh, discussing through this morning. It kind of connects to the passage before and connects to the one that we're about to go, but in so doing gives a pretty significant command. And I would say to you, the first time as I was preparing for the sermon series, in my initial outline, I had a whole sermon planned on just this particular verse because in some ways you could see how this verse is almost at the center of the whole sermon of James. He's trying to get them to, to understand where they're at. So all that to say, uh, the teaching time this morning is going to be going to go this way. We're going to have like a five-minute devotional and then a sermon after that. Does so, it make sense? <laughs> we'll try to keep the sermon a little shorter since you're getting double duty this morning. But what I want to do is deal with James chapter 3, verse 1 by itself and then jump into the, the next chapter 2, verse 12 together. Because James, James 3, 1 actually will launch us into it pretty well. Okay, so, James chapter 3, verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, what on earth is James saying here at the moment? What I've tried to argue throughout this whole teaching series is that one of the things James is pushing on to his audience is There's a sense in which they feel like they've kind of arrived at a high point. There's an arrogance that's within them that James will address from time to time. There's a sense in which they feel like they've got it all together. And James is consistently sort of pushing back against that, saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, right? All throughout he's saying you actually tend to be double-minded people who are somewhat immature, And so here he kind of just kind of comes out with it. He's like, listen, not many amongst you are ready to teach. Now, that probably is happening, one, because he wants to get that out there. Two, because perhaps some of them are suggesting they are ready to teach. They're ready to take that role in this particular uh, gathering of the believers. And James is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, why is he saying that? I think, particularly on the basis of what he's just said at the end of James chapter 2, what we spent uh, a lengthy period of time last Sunday going through, this idea of the relationship between works and faith and an understanding of the fullness of the gospel that does not flip it and say that we can earn God's favor, but also doesn't cut it short and just say, yeah, I just have... Just have generic faith and God takes care of everything else. But instead, faith that actually proves itself through works. And James is saying, listen, if you're going to teach, you have to understand what the Gospel is. Grace, faith, proved through works. It's a prerequisite. And therefore, not many of you are ready to be teachers yet. Now, he makes an interesting statement after that. He says, because those of us who teach have a more significant condemnation or judgment that hangs over us. It's a strong word. It's almost like he's saying to them, you better not teach because God's going to get really angry with you if you mess it up. Um, and though we don't like to talk here at Hope in terms of God being really angry at people because that's not kind of how he functions, there is a couple of things in which God gets particularly peeved at, and one of them is adulterating the Gospel, right? And this is exactly what James is talking about. He's not saying you need to get through seminary. He's not saying you need to earn an MDiv. He's not saying you need to pass through all these theology classes in order to be able to stand up and teach, but he is saying you need to understand and it needs to be affirmed in you that you know what the Gospel is. Now, the person who warns the strongest against this should not surprise us. It's Jesus himself. And we know that James gets his teaching from Jesus. And so Jesus himself gives these strong kind of warnings about people who are teaching uh, salvation messages to people. In one place, uh, he says this in Matthew chapter 23, I believe, chapter 23, verse 14. Um, It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Right? These are the the Jewish teachers of the day. Hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. In other words, he's saying you've got an external faith, right? You've got that false faith, in essence, that James talks about, but it's not driving you to good things. Therefore, he says, you will receive the greater condemnation. Same exact phrase that James uses here in James chapter 3, verse 1. This is what James is talking about. He's not talking about judgment for the pastor who doesn't get the perfect uh, interpretation of a particular passage of Scripture. He's talking about a teacher who stands up and confidently in front of a group of believers and misrepresents the Gospel. This is a huge deal. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus says it like this, hey, anyone who misleads one of these youngsters, he's talking about people young in the faith, right? He says it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around them and tossed into the depths of the sea. Right? You kind of get the picture that Jesus cares deeply about people who are going to be representing the gospel. Again, not in all its nuances, not in all its depths, but in the key understanding, grace, faith that produces works. You've got to get that right. And so James is, I think, in chapter one, or chapter three, verse one making what I'll call a personal statement and a corporate statement. as he's talking directly to these people and saying, listen, not many of you are yet ready to do that because you haven't figured out exactly what the gospel is. And he's addressing their arrogance and he's showing them again, they need to continue to grow, pursue maturity, pursue single-mindedness in their maturity. But he's also making a corporate message, and this is what I really want to drive home to us this morning. Because my guess is, in the whole audience that James is writing to, the people that, who had like an earnest desire to teach were a small minority amongst them. The same way it happens there. You're probably listening to this thinking, I have no desire to teach. I'm more than happy to listen. Well, my guess is that when James writes that, he's talking to them even more than the people who have a desire to teach. Because even though we may not have a desire to teach, we will always be placing ourselves under the teaching of someone. Does this make sense? And you better be very careful how you do it. I don't say that to be um, dire or anything like that. I'm not saying that to say there's, here's a list of authors you're allowed to read. We don't do any of that nonsense at Hope. You should read widely. We trust your intellect. But what do you need to know? You need to know what the Gospel is so that you can evaluate the teaching or the writing uh, that you're processing correctly. Does it make sense? And James is saying to them, listen, it matters. You might think, ah, but input always equals output. Again, it doesn't mean you should ban things or not read things that will be contradictory, but you need to read them or listen to them critically so that you are processing them in the right way in submission to the Gospel and what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. That's even why at Hope we place such a significant reality on the role of teaching. And we don't just say, well, whoever wants to teach. No, it matters uh, that if you're part of our congregation that you've been known and you've demonstrated a a capacity to know what the Gospel is and what the Gospel is isn't before you're able to stand up and, and teach on the reality of it. The teaching is not something that ought to be restrictive in the church. Right? That is that, oh, only one or two should be doing the teaching. But it is meant to be something that ought to be justified. Does this make sense? In other words, that you ought to, as an individual, have been able to prove that you know what the Gospel is before you are able to stand up and speak on behalf of it. James says this. Because of the reality of what the Gospel is, not many of you should be are ready to be teachers. And then a whole other reason not many of you maybe are ready to be teachers is the issue of the tongue. Because obviously, teaching is all about speaking. And so, he jumps off of chapter 1, then into the body of what we're significantly going to talk about this morning. So let's keep reading. Devotions on teaching, check, done, right? Here we go. Regular sermon. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, and it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body sets the whole course of one's life on fire and it it uh, and is itself set on fire by hell all kinds of animals birds reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison with the tongue we praise our lord and our father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What do we make of this One of the questions that came in that, that directly speaks to this reality of the tongue said, "Man, it seems like James has a really pessimistic view of the tongue. Can't good things happen with the tongue? Is it all bad? And uh, that's quite an astute observation. I want to suggest to you that James actually speaks of the power for good of the tongue in this passage and sets it against, over against, the power of the tongue for evil. And I think what James is eventually going to say to us is, okay, how do we then mobilize the tongue for good instead of allowing it to act uh, for evil? So James speaks about what we'll call the power of the tongue. Uh, and, and again, he speaks about it in terms of power for good and power for evil, for evil. And he starts this whole phrase with it in an interesting way. And you remember that James is like, you know, super sermon maker. So he's got all these illustrations going on. And sometimes they're, they're compelling and sometimes they're confusing. And he leads in with interesting introductions. And, and here it happens again where he says, listen, all of us stumble, right? The word for stumble is kind of, the, we trip up, we, we mess up, we make mistakes. He said, if, if anyone was perfect, they would be able to control their whole body. And I think what he's trying to do there is set us up to say, imagine that. Imagine if you had the capacity to control all parts of you. And then he goes from there into two analogies. And in both those analogies, he's talking about the tongue. And what I want to suggest to you is he's trying to put the tongue in good light, the possibilities of what the tongue can do. He's saying, listen, we all trip up, so the, the, the aspiration of perfection, it's, you know, we're not going to get there. But imagine if you were perfect and you could control everything. And then what he's trying to say is you actually have uh, a piece of you, your tongue, that's actually able to wield control over large portions of your whole being. That the tongue has this possibility, I want to suggest, for good. He says, of great boasts, right? The NLV translated, but it has great boasts, almost to put it in a negative sense. I don't think that's a good translation. I think, And it has great boasts. In other words, he's saying it has this, Power in it. Uh, he uses these Greek words, micron and megalos, right? That small but mighty kind of reality that's going on there. So he gives these two illustrations. Uh, the second one he gives is of the rudder of a ship, right? Now I'm no sailor. I've been out on the water a couple of times, uh, two times successfully. The third time, I, I told you the story of being in that that powerboat at the shore this past week wanted to just dive off and live with the dolphins because it was so terrifying. But anyway, the truth of of a boat, as many of you know, is that it's steered by this small reality in the back, and especially in those days. Now, we oftentimes think of ships in the days of Jesus as the small fishing vessels on the Sea of Galilee, but shipmaking had actually grown significantly, uh, and there were big ships out on the Mediterranean Sea, big passenger ships carrying hundreds of people. Uh, In fact, we know that the ship that Paul was shipwrecked on was carrying in excess of 100 people. So these big ships out on these big seas, and there's just this small guy, he might not be small, small rudder, and a guy or a woman back there moving it. And wherever the rudder goes, it's able to direct the ship. And, And James is careful to say, even in the face of great weather, great natural resistance, Now James is saying the tongue has this power. It can control you even in the face of great resistance. And the first illustration he uses, perhaps more compelling, uh, that of a horse, right? Like he's comparing your life or your body to a wild horse that needs to be tamed. Uh, And of course, I, I know very little about horses, but I know some of this reality that the bridles put over the horse's face and And then inside the horse's mouth is what James refers to as the bit, oftentimes metal. Uh, It fits right behind the the front teeth of the horse. Apparently there's a gap in the teeth of of a horse, who knew? And the bit is placed in there uh, and skillfully used by a rider using the bridle that it's attached to in the reins can get the horse to obey wherever it goes. These two illustrations are not negative illustrations, right? See how terrible a rudder is for a ship? That would be ridiculous. It's not a negative illustration. Or see how horrible the bit is for the horse? It makes it go all over. No, it controls it. These are positive illustrations. And James is saying the tongue has that kind of power. Imagine if we could harness it. It could have incredible implications for all of our bodies and for our lives. But then as if saying, but before, you get away, before we get away from ourselves, let me also let you in on another reality about the tongue, right? That as much as it has power for good, and we've seen this in our society, great speeches, moments of encouragement where people have spoken truth to you, uh, uh, words of love given to you by your, by your kids or, or your boyfriend or girlfriend, your parents, your spouse. These are moments where the tongue has incredible power in our lives. James is like, but it also has incredible power for evil. And we've all experienced that too. right? I was thinking about this, and I think I can say without hesitation that all of the greatest regrets of my life have to do with things I've said. And James uses another illustration here. An illustration of a small spark that starts a forest fire. right? Like a really poorly planned gender reveal. You know, a gender reveal for a baby. You remember those stories of the in California or whatever they were doing the gender reveal and it literally started a forest fire? Craziness, right? And James is saying the same thing. That our tongues have this power for evil. Small and yet can start fires that are so consequential. In fact, I think we could translate that verse in James this particular way. He says, A fire, behold a flame, how small. This is my translation of this verse. Behold a flame, how small. That's the, the, the Greek language used there. How small the flame, right? He's talking about the tongue. Sets on, far, on fire a forest, how great. You kind of get the poetic reality of what James is trying to say here. That's the, the original language as it's spoken. And these words, how small and how great, they have to do with size, right, for sure, and scope. They also have to do with maturity. Does this make sense? And so there's a sense in which the immature tongue, (laughs) which itself is a small organ in our body or a small part of our body, can have massive consequences in all of our lives and in the lives of others. Incredible warning about the power for evil of the tongue. In fact, James goes on to say it's a world of evil. The tongue, he uses the word the cosmos. A tongue is a cosmos, right? The cosmos of the Greek word is the whole world. He's saying your tongue itself is its own world, and it's a world of evil. The word evil there is not the traditional evil word. It's the, the Greek word a All right, and is the idea of righteousness or justification that we've just talked about at the end of James. The standing with God. And then it just adds the prefix ah in front of it, which many of you know is a negation, right? It says it negates the standing. Now it doesn't mean that it takes away our standing, but in essence, your, the, your tongues, the world that your tongue lives in, that it, that it comprises is a, a world of no standing with God. That it, it, it speaks from that place. Incredible. A tongue, a world of evil. And it goes, goes on to say, that sets the whole course of your life on fire. Strong language from James, right? The scope is incredible. That that one statement, that, that one thing said, can have lifelong consequences on us. You know, it's fascinating because this word translated life here, again, is not the normal word translated life in Greek. It's a it's the word geneseos, right? We get our English word genesis from it. It means start or origin. Right? So James is in essence saying that your tongue has the powerful e- power for evil. It has the power to start great forest fires. It has the power to set ablaze the whole course of your origin. right? And so we kind of get the idea of what he's talking about here, like the purpose you were given, right? The reason you've been created, Image bearers of God, the tongue has the capacity to to throw that way off course, to set it fully ablaze. And then, as if this wasn't enough, he says, "And your tongue is your fire from your tongue is lit from hell itself." Right now. People could disagree on this. I do not think that James is here attempting to shift the blame to Satan. Let's say, you know, we as Christians tend to do this. I think it's, it's a real issue in my particular perspective on it is that we tend to Satan blame, right? Now listen, we believe, and, and the Scriptures tell us, and it's good theology to believe, Satan is real, Satan is powerful, Satan is evil, Satan is in uh, opposition to the kingdom of God. But Satan is not the only thing real, powerful, and in opposition to God. Your flesh also joins him. I don't think what James is trying to get here is saying, yeah, and the whole problem starts with Satan. I think what he's trying to remind us, the same way last week he reminded us, you know, you can have faith, but it's just like demons, you know. He's trying to constantly remind us that our flesh is on that level. He's he's relating our flesh to hell, to Satan, to demons, reminding us that inside of us is a direct opposition to the things of God that is working against obedience to God. And we better understand that if we're going to figure this stuff out. So in essence, we get this far into James chapter 3 and we're dealing with this issue of the tongue we're kind of faced with the question that I think James wants us to face it with. So, the tongue has great power for good and great power for evil. So how do we get it to do more good than evil? right? How do we grow? This is the James question. How do we grow in this? And before we get any farther, James needs to remind us of a couple of things. A couple of truths that are going to keep us from trying to turn to religion to figure this out. Religion is... We do a bunch of these external things to make sure we do good instead of dealing internally with the problem. So the first thing we would normally say is, "Well, we've got to tame our tongue. right? We've got to whip it into submission and force it to do good and not to do bad. And James is like, before you go any farther, let me tell you a little secret about the tongue. It can't be tamed. The tongue is itself untamable. Now this is fascinating. And the language James uses should be astonishing to us. Think about the implications of this. He says, listen, all the wild beasts of the world we have figured out how to tame. With one exception. Your tongue. You think about that, right? So there's two implications of that that strike me. The first is, James is saying that your tongue is a wild beast. Right? We should figure that out. That's probably truth. The second thing he's saying is, Think about the animals of the world that have been successfully tamed. Venomous snakes. Giant elephants. My dog Nora, right? All of of these crazy things that have been tamed. And you mean to tell me this tongue can't be tamed? That should blow our minds, right? Tigers are tamed. Lions are tamed but your tongue can't be tamed. And it should naturally make us ask the question, well, why? This doesn't make sense. And so James pushes a little deeper. He says, I'll tell you why. Because your tongue, he says, is a restless evil. The word restless is a fascinating word. It literally means uh, incontrollable, right? Uncontrollable. Uh, almost to the point, external biblical use of like, towards anarchy, Right? You will not control me. It's wild. It's turbulent. Right? You've ever been on a really horribly turbulent plane ride? That's the kind of idea of living life with your tongue. You can't tame it. And if that wasn't enough, he also says, it's full of poison that kills. Right? So the imagery is like this. I don't know if this lands for you, but this is how I was thinking of it. Remember, remember the, the show The Muppets? Does that show even exist anymore? Remember the crazy The Muppets? Remember Animal? The, dr- the crazy drummer Animal who's wild and all over the place and stuff like that? That's how I picture my tongue, right? Like Animal the drummer. Every once in a while it's nice, but all the time he's crazy and all these things. But oh, by the way, Animal has access to like all kinds of sarin gas and poison, right? Like in these fragile jars. And he may not intend... You may have no intention to let it fly out to all the world, but he's crazy. He's all over the place, right? He's slamming things around. And things are breaking. If you don't like animal, remember the Tasmanian devil? Remember that crazy guy, right? This is the idea that James is kind of trying to picture here. It's not so much that your tongue's out to do all this horrible evil. It's just uncontrollable. It's wild. You can sometimes rein it in, but oftentimes you can't. And here's the problem with that: it has access to weapons of mass destruction. Right? And that's a huge problem. The word poison has to do with the venom of a venomous snake, an asp maybe in, um, in the present, that day, present day Egypt, or the, the poison that they sometimes would put on the tip of an arrow before it was shot off. It was poison meant to kill. James is saying, do you see the problem? Right? The problem isn't all oh, that your tongue is on a war. It's that you can't control it. Stuff comes out and it has access to all kinds of poison that kills. What are you going to do? And then, secondly, he says, listen, here's the other reality of your tongue. It's just as double-minded as you are. Remember James is pushing this whole idea of double-mindedness throughout this letter. Like, kind of one foot in, one foot out. Wisdom of God, but wisdom of man. And So what does he say about the tongue? On one side, it blesses the Lord. And on the other side, it curses people made in His image. Right? It makes no sense unless it's double-minded. And all of us, all of us without exception, have, had, have lived that reality of praising God and seconds later, cursing someone made in His image. And James is like, it shouldn't be this way. And we're like, of course it shouldn't be this way. But what are we supposed to do? And James is reminding us, well, you're not going to tame it. So what do you do? And here's, I think, where people miss what James is really driving at. Because we're kind of left in this lurch, right? In this no man's land of like, well, James James is like, some could be good, but it could be really bad. And, you know, good luck trying to tame it. You can't do it. And it's almost like he goes on. Right? He's like, well, I'm going on to the next topic. But he doesn't. He just uses another illustration that sometimes we don't really grab hold of. And this time, it's an illustration of a, of a fountain, right? Or of a spring. But it's really the Greek word that means well. right? So when Jesus visits the woman at the well, it's the same Greek word James uses for the spring here. He says, listen, if a spring is attached to a source of salty water, the spring will be salty. The spring is attached to a source of fresh water. The spring will be fresh. Likewise, if you drill a well into brackish water, you're not going to be able to drink it, right? But if you drill a well into fresh groundwater, it's completely potable. You can drink it. And in case they didn't get it, he moves on to a second illustration. He's like, listen, fig trees uh, don't grow olives. They grow figs. (laughs) And olive vines don't grow figs. They grow olives. In other words, what it's connected to, what it is, is what it's going to produce. And we say, oh, that's interesting. But James isn't just bringing those up by happenstance. He's giving us the solution. You see it? He's telling us how to deal with our tongue, which itself is untamable. He's saying, you've got to figure out the source. That's the issue. So your tongue is like a well that sends buckets down and it brings up salt water. Is that the well's fault? Or is it the source's fault? And James said, you've got to figure out the source. Don't you see it? This is what he's saying. And once again, James is teaching on the basis of Jesus' teaching. Who very famously in, in Matthew chapter 12 said, and I'll summarize, out of the heart. The mouth speaks. There's a source, right? And the source isn't the tongue. The tongue's the well. The source is the heart. And James is saying, if you want to do religious work about trying to tie your tongue and, and whipping your tongue into shape and you never deal with your heart, what he would call that is worthless religion, right? That's James' language. Useless, worthless religion. You've got to deal with the source. Now listen, when the Greek world, the Hellenistic world, the, the, the Jewish world, first century uh, Jewish world of Jesus, when they speak of the heart, they're not talking about the organ in our body that pumps blood to all parts and keeps us alive. They're talking about the inner seat of the person. right? The place that derives and searches for identity and direction and ethic for the person. It's our our inner being. It's our heart that directs the activities to... to to discover to find to protect and to maintain our identity who we are it's the place from which we ask and try to find the answers to am i significant am i secure am i accepted and jesus says out of that heart your mouth speaks for good or for evil Greatly steering the ship of your life, even against the currents of the world, or launching forest fires. The problem isn't the tongue, the problem's the source. So, what do we do? What do we do with our hearts, which are greatly divided, which are broken, which are affected by our flesh and our sinfulness? Do we go on a religious operation of trying to fix them? To James, this would be foolishness. Again, worthless religion. It would be like trying to go to the ocean and and get all the salt out of it. You can't do that, right? Or going to a fig tree with your uh, magician's wand and trying to suddenly make it grow olives. That's why James uses these illustrations. You can't do it. Your heart is producing what it's producing because it is what it is. And so the issue is actually greater than finding the source. The issue becomes you must discover a new source. You mean a new heart? Exactly. Do you remember the King David of the Old Testament? Remember King David of the Old Testament? Right? Man with a heart after God, said of him, right? Except not really. <laughs> And it comes to the place where he has this massive sin with Bathsheba that leads to murdering her husband. It's like a massive fall, massive tripping up, right? If anyone stumbles, a little trip up. It's like anyone falls flat on their face into massive sin that affects millions, right? David. That's what happened to him. This man with a heart after God. This is what's going on in his world. And David comes face to face with with his sin. And he's in the process of, of confessing it to God. And he writes a psalm, which is really this this song of confession to God. And and I want to read part of it with you. It'll be on the screen here. Psalm 51, start verse 7. He says, listen, I need to be cleansed, right? I've failed. I've messed up. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. He's asking for God's cleansing. Come and cleanse me. Fix me, and I'll be Clean. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He goes on, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. And let's stop. go back one, Jack. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Now if we get only to this point, we think he's asking a normal prayer of confession, right? Cleanse me. Forgive me. Really good stuff. But David has understood something about himself. That just asking for a cleansing isn't good enough. Do you know what we did yesterday? We went and got our car washed. Wasn't that smart? (laughs) Because, you know, I'm not listening to forecasts. And it was super warm out, and there's salt on outside of our car, and it needed to be cleaned. Guess what's going to need to happen again? It needs to be cleaned and cleaned and cleaned and cleaned. David gets this, right? And so he goes on. Verse 10. Create. In me. Now this is different language than cleanse. Do you hear this? Now he's saying I need something new. It can't be cleaned up, right? It's like the kid who writes on the white erase board with the permanent marker, right? There's no fixing that. Maybe there is, but there isn't, right? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. David has understood he needs a new source. The old one can't be fixed. He needs something new. He says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David understands exactly what Jesus would later go on to teach. From your heart, not only does your mouth speak, but your life lives. Right? So the issue for us isn't trying to do better, trying to make better choices, trying to tame our tongue, teaching ourselves to say better things. You can make some progress, but you've got a problem. The well keeps going down into salty water. You need a new source. You need to pray the Psalm 51 prayer with regularity. God, I need a new source. And guess how God ultimately answers this prayer? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Right? This is what the Gospel is. This is what we talk about every Sunday. That through the personal work of Jesus, through His incarnation, His death, and His resurrection, what He has done is He's made us what we've just sung about earlier and prayed about. New creation. Right? Now what does that mean that we're a new creation now? Because uh, my hairline continues to recede. Right? And my joints continue to deteriorate. Nothing feels new. What's the new creation that Jesus is talking about? It's a heart. Do you see this? It's a source that will ultimately, when He comes to restore all things, will mean a new body that's fully restored and and, and like God intends it to be. But in the meantime, He's given us a new source that we can find our true identity from, that we can lower our bucket into and drink from, And be full, Jesus says about well water that he gives. Remember in John chapter 4. I've got water that you drink and you'll be fully satisfied. Imagine if we drank from it. James would say, We could control our whole body. Yes, exactly. You say, Well, then why don't we? I wish I knew. (laughs) Right? And this is what James is ultimately driving at. That it's not enough to simply discover the source and diagnose the problem. It's not also enough simply to get a new source, though that's the huge reality. The third thing that we have to do, if we're going to grow, is we have to continue to access the new source. That's on us. That's what James would call in James chapter 1, welcoming in the gospel, right? Not just hearing it, welcoming in so we can do it. And am I saying you have to intentionally lower your bucket into that well instead of the other one? Yes. That's what you have to do. Here's the reality. Let me let you in on it. We live in this weird in-between time. We've told, we prayed about it earlier, right? We're new creations in Jesus already, but not yet. <laughs> right? We're longing for Jesus to complete His full work in us and in our world. And in the meantime, we taste it but not in its fullness. What does that mean in James' language? It means you currently have two wells inside of you. You mean I have two hearts? Yes. Figuratively, not literally, because the Greek idea of the heart wasn't the beating thing in your chest. And every moment of every day, every decision you're making, whether it be the words you speak, James specific about the tongue here, or how you live, begins with, which well you are lowering your bucket into. You see this? So here's where I love one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it gets at this idea of sanctification so perfectly. Is what Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, this is what he says. 1 Timothy 6.12 He says, Fight the good fight of the faith. This is sanctification. This is lowering your bucket into the right well. This is uh, it accessing the new source. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made good by, your, uh, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now listen to that. You would most of us would agree that when Paul is writing this, he's writing to someone who's already been converted, right? This is a person who's already come to faith in Jesus. This is a person who's a, a pastor in a church who's 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 been certified and 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 um, ordained to teach in the church. This is someone who we should trust. And yet Paul is saying to him, you need to take hold of your salvation? Yes. What's he saying? Access the right well. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to either take hold of your salvation, or as James would say, human wisdom, right? It's not that you are outside of it, and you don't have it, that you've got to take it anew because you're not a believer in Jesus, but you've got to take hold of it. You've got to access it. This is what we're called to do. Do you see this? It's there for the taking, but you must take hold of it every moment of every day. But listen to how he started the whole verse fight. Right? Fight. The Greek word is agonizomai, right? We understand the English word we get from that agony. That doesn't sound like fun at all, right? And perhaps it's not but the end result is drinking the water that makes us thirst no more. He says, listen, not going to be easy for you to take hold of. Why? Because you've got the flesh inside of you that is warring against it. Right? He relates it to hell. You've got to fight. You've got to contend. You've got to strive. You've got to work hard to embrace salvation because there's a part of you that is yet un." un, uh, un restored, un, un, not yet part of the new creation that Jesus has done, that is battling towards human wisdom, towards doing what you want to do, living your own life, finding your own identity. And every time you lean into that, every time you, you, you lower your bucket into that, you find a fleeting reality that is, that is draining and unsustaining and, and crippling. That every time that you take hold of salvation, even though it's super hard to continually fight that battle in your life day after day after day. When you do, what you find is you're drinking water that actually quenches the thing you're thirsting for. True identity, purpose, meaning, direction. Using your tongue for its original purpose. Geneseos, right? But there's actually not just beauty in it, but satisfaction. All too often, we'll read a passage of Scripture like this and leave with one of two responses. Oh, man, this is hopeless. Our tongue is just the worst. That's option number one. Option number two, oh, man, that's right. My tongue is really bad. I'm going to work really hard and get it better. And James says both of those things are not true. Your tongue has the power for great good. You've seen it. Lower the bucket down the right well. It can be agonizingly hard, especially in the winds of the world, to hold the rudder the right way. But it makes all of the difference. And it gives you the life that you long for. And oh, by the way, As your tongue draws continually from the well of the gospel, it does exert that great power over your whole being. Because the thing your tongue is more than capable of doing is speaking the gospel to the rest of yourself. Imagine the transformation that is possible if, like Paul urges Timothy, We fight the good fight, the gospel fight, and take hold of the salvation. And stop trying to fight the losing battle of ridding the ocean of salt. And instead, access the perfectly fresh water that's available to us. Can I pray with you?